All right, so today I want to take you along with me on a boat ride with Jesus and the disciples. I want to take you to the Gospel of Mark this morning. So if you would, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 4 at this time, beginning in verse 35. And I'll read down to the end of the chapter. Mark writes in verse 35 that on that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke. And rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is a phenomenal narrative that magnifies Jesus beyond compare when you actually look at it. But as I I studied it this week, I, I found myself not so much with Jesus in the sense that I see his his glory and his magnificence and his mercy. But I found myself more in line with the disciples here. I found myself relating to these disciples in many ways because the disciples at this point in their journey with Jesus was still at a point of immaturity. They were still weak in faith and fearful in these events. And I say that because I think that we could all relate to that, but but that's really not the point of the story, though maybe that's the way you've heard it in the past. The story is not primarily about the weak faith and the fear of the disciples. This narrative is primarily about the question they asked in verse 41. Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Church, that's the primary point of the miracle that we read about here in this text. This miracle was brought to them to reveal Jesus' full identity to his disciples and to us today. And that point has massive implications, secondary implications for us as we can relate to the disciples in many ways. But that's not the primary point of this narrative. The question is, who then is this in the storm with these fearful and faint-hearted disciples? Let's look again at verses 35 and 36. It's a simple narrative. The end of the day, here's what happens. It says, on that day, this is in the evening, it says, when evening had come, Jesus said to them, let us go across to the other side. Now, the other side was a a region that was full of Gentiles. And leaving the crowd, the Jews, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. Now, 
on the surface, just reading that, it's, it's not a really phenomenal story at this point, right? It's not real spectacular. However, there's something very interesting in it. The, the, the people who would have, would have written fictional stories about legends at this time period, they never would have wrote it this way. Because there's an incidental event that takes place here in this story about Jesus and the disciples. It says other boats went with them, right? That was never added into a legend or a fictional story. And this just bears witness to the fact that this was a reality. This was true history. But let's look at verse 35. Verse 35 here, Mark begins this, this narrative by, by mentioning a particular moment in time, right? On that day. My question is, well, Mark, what kind of day was that, right? Well, it was obviously a tiring day because Jesus needed to find rest in that boat, as you'll see as we go through it. But Mark actually does give us an insight into what his day was like in this very chapter. He shows us why it was a tiring day for Jesus. It was a day full of preaching and teaching. Jesus was spending and being spent for the sake of others. And in Mark 4, verse 1 and 2, you see what kind of day it was for him. Let's read that together. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. He used this boat as a mobile pulpit, if you will, right? He ventures away from the crowd out into the sea, this lake, and he's basically preaching across it to the people as they gathered all around. And he is, imagine this, he is there in the heat of the day. He's there throughout the day preaching, teaching. Then it says, and he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he went on to say, Here are these parables that I'm going to explain to you the kingdom of God through. And then go down to verse 34. He not only preached publicly and spent his energies all day long caring for these crowds of people. He also went beyond this into the inner teaching of his own disciples. He says he did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. For a preacher, this is an exhausting day because preaching is an exhaustive work. In case you don't know that Sunday afternoons are meant for preachers to rest. All right. We go home and collapse. Jesus didn't have time for that. He was spent and he was spending himself for the good of others. And that is our savior, is it not? He gave it all. He, he taught them in private. He preached to them publicly. He cared for all these people. And this, this day, this day is a very important day in that regard. This day was a life-transforming day for these disciples. But it was an exhausting day for the Lord Jesus. In verse 36, Mark goes on to tell us that after he was doing this, and the, on that day when they said he said, let us go across to the other side, it says, leaving the crowd, they took Jesus in the boat Just as he was. Well, again, Mark, how was he? How would he have been? Well, he would have been weary. He would have been hungry. And he was obviously eager to go to another country, another land, and continue serving those who had need of him on the other side of that lake. 
So when the disciples heard this command from their Lord, though they were immature in their faith, they did act in faith. They obeyed the command. They quickly obeyed him. They put him into the boat. They they went across. They headed out. They did it without fear or any hesitation because these were experienced fishermen. And and they saw no signs of danger, no fearful warnings in the sky that they needed to be concerned about. They they expected a totally uneventful journey across this lake. But in verse 37, everything changed. Look what it says. A great windstorm arose. The best way to describe that would be 70 mile an hour plus winds. Hurricane force winds. This great windstorm just shows up out of nowhere. No warning, no indication. And the waves were breaking into the boat. This is how serious this was. The waves were breaking into this little vessel so that the boat was already filling. Now, before the service today, I paced off an area here in the front to see if I could actually picture the size of that boat, which was very interesting to do that because when I did, I realized it was a really small vessel. It was about as wide as from this post to that chair and about as long as from this post to that wall, about eight by 27, about four foot deep, held about 15 people in that vessel. And it's telling us that these winds were so intense that they were actually filling the boat, going over the boat five, six, eight feet. These winds and tossed these waves over the boat. Now, these men, as I said, they were experienced fishermen and, and they knew that this was possible on the Sea of Galilee. Very possible. It's prone to this kind of storm. But like I said, they didn't see any danger when they ventured out. But saints, this storm didn't become what it was by accident. It didn't appear by accident, by happenstance. This storm came on them suddenly without any warning because it was divinely ordained to help these disciples see Jesus just as he is. This is the primary point. The Sea of Galilee is an interesting body of water. As I said, it was prone to these kinds of storms. These were called boat-destroying storms. And and they were called that because the Sea of Galilee set 680 feet below sea level, and the mountain range around it elevated up to around 9,200 feet. And so these cold winds that hovered over the mountains would come rushing down, hit the warm air off of the body of water, and they would basically produce these hurricane, tornado-like winds and storms upon this sea. And these winds and these waves would eventually crush the mightiest fishing vessel that you could imagine at the time. And church, this is the kind of storm that Mark describes here in verse 37. We have to almost picture this with our sanctified imagination because we've never experienced anything like that here in Oklahoma, right? Never been on a body of water where this kind of hurricane-like storm appeared before us and, and took us by surprise. Now, what makes this even more intense, just imagine if you were there with them as, as they were heading out and they think that it's a beautiful, placid lake. It's, it's beautiful to cross. It's a good time to go through there and the sun's going down. But by the time they get out further into the lake, the Sea of Galilee, It's dark and the storm suddenly appears. You can't see the shore 
The winds are blowing out of control. The waves are crashing into the boat, filling the boat. Just imagine the true fear that was actually gripping those men at that time. Even though these men were experienced fishermen, this terrified them. This storm brought a a real threat of death to these men. Remember who some of these men were. You've got James and John and Peter. They're all there. They're all experienced. But, but in their fear, it was so great, in their fear, these fishermen gave up on the other men around them. And they finally had to cry out to a carpenter. They cried out to Jesus. He was not a sailor. They cried out to him. That's what happens in verse 38. It tells us where Jesus was at when this storm was breaking loose on this vessel. He was in the stern, that's the back of the boat, asleep on the cushion. That's just hard to imagine, is it not? Listen, I I put in about, you know, 60 hours by Wednesday of this week. And when I came in and hit the bed, I fell asleep immediately, all right? I was exhausted. But I think this would have woke me up. But not our Lord. He's in perfect peace. He knows who he is and he knows who has sent him. And he knows that this will not destroy him. He was appointed to a cross, not a fishing boat. They said to him, and they woke him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? (laughs) Now this was a cry for help, right? But it's a mixed up cry for help. It's mixed with desperation and frustration, and it's filled with an accusation, a rebuke against Jesus himself, because he's asleep, because he's resting, because he's not stressed, he's not anxious, he's not even helping. They said, do you not care? Saints, have you ever felt that way when you're being surrounded by a storm and you don't see Jesus acting? We've all felt that way. We all have this hidden frustration, this hidden accusation in our hearts that we need to have purged out. And that's what this miracle is meant to do. He does care. And we'll see how much as we move through the text. But but this cry, this cry for help is somewhat a good thing here because it at least reveals some small level of faith in these men. They, They had given up on all their means of saving themselves and they finally looked to Jesus but it's a faith that's mixed with fear. They, they actually may have been thinking, well, Jesus, you could at least start bailing water out, right? At least you could start rowing with us, trying to get out of the storm. Or at the very least, you could pray to the Father to save us in the midst of this tragic event. But what he was doing, peacefully sleeping in the midst of the storm, And what he would do when he awoke, that absolutely shocked them. It surprised them in a good way, but a very tragic way in one sense, because they didn't see who he was until he did this. Now, before we go into what he did and the great miracle that we see in the next passage, before we do that, before we read about this miracle that's going to take place in verse 39, I want to ask you a hermeneutical question this morning. A Bible interpretation question. Why is this story included in the gospel accounts? In particular, Mark's account here. What is the purpose of this story? Is it just to comfort us when we go through the storms of life? 
Or is there a greater purpose underneath in this miracle? To find the answer to that, we have to go back to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. In Mark chapter 1, we find the answer. Let me read it to you. This is the purpose that this account is given in Mark chapter 4. Mark's wanting to write about something critical to all of our lives. The beginning of the good news or the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We find Mark's purpose for writing this, for including this account here in this text. Mark is writing this because he wants everyone who reads this to know who Jesus truly is. He is the Son of God. He is truly human. He is truly divine. God the Son. He is our sovereign creator and our merciful Savior. Mark wants us to see the full-orbed view of Jesus. That's why this account is given. This revelation is the primary reason for the miracle that's about to take place in verse 39. Look there with me again. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. (laughs) That's an amazing, amazing miracle. Beyond my comprehension. I can understand Jesus stopping the wind, but making the waves cease. This lake was completely placid, like glass, the very voice of Jesus. The wind ceased. The waves ceased. This was not some natural event that took place. He didn't simply make the winds back off for a while and slowly let the waves decrease. No, he spoke and creation responded. This is what these men needed to see. This is what we need to see. This is our Jesus. This is who our Savior is. He is our creator. He is our Savior. And he writes this because he wants us to know this. He wants us to know that he is the Son of God. Truly human, truly divine. In verse 40, it says, and he said to them, why are you so afraid? Now, imagine this. When, when they came to him and, and said, don't you care about us? And he just he gets up. He doesn't even address them. He addresses the, the nature around them, the, the forces of wind and wave around them. He looks into those things, those storms, that storm itself, and he speaks to it without saying a word to them. And then he finally does say something to them. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Do you not know who I am? Previous to this in Mark's gospel, he has healed a leper. He has healed a paralytic. He has done these mighty healings at Peter's home, healing the crowds. And they still don't quite understand who he is. Since we can be with Jesus for a long time and still not fully understand who he truly is until we look to his revelation and his word. It's here we find out who Jesus is. It's here sometimes through a storm that we finally get to see a glimpse of our Savior more fully, right? And as a result of the question and the stealing of the sea, verse 41 says, And they were filled with great phobos, great fear. Filled, controlled, dominated. 
with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They'd never seen anything like this, never would, apart from him. This is only an act that God can do. They're getting a glimpse of who Jesus truly is. Who then is this? There was a great wind. There was a great fear. Because the one who was there with them was being revealed through this storm. But keep in mind, saints, that the emphasis in verses 39 and 41 to 41, again, is not the weak faith and the fear of the disciples. The emphasis at this point is on the question in verse 41. Who then is this? Church, that question should echo in our hearts today. It should echo in your heart when you face the storms of life because they'll come, saints. You live long enough and you will suffer. You should have this question and the answer to this question in your heart when they do come, though. Because if you have the answer to this question in your heart at the time that the storm comes, it will make all the difference in the world and in eternity. Who then is this with them and us in the storms of life? That's the question the gospel of Mark seeks to answer. Mark's purpose in this particular passage is to help answer that more clearly for us. By showing us the true nature of Jesus, the Son of God. Because Mark wants us to, like the disciples, to fully trust in this one who had come to save. To save us from the storms, not of nature necessarily, the storms that come into this fallen world. But the storms of sin and the storms of death and the storm of God's wrath. That's why Jesus came. That's why he's here with them. Oh, saints, he cares for them. He cares for them greatly, more than they can imagine. But this is the reason that Mark writes this. This is the great purpose for the revelation of this miracle in verse 39. The miracle here revealed to these disciples for the very first time the greatness of the one who had called them to follow him. It revealed to them the greatness of the one who had directed them into the storm in the boat. It revealed to them that this is the one who is now not only calling us and directing us, he is now demonstrating to us his transcendent power and his sovereign authority over all creation itself. This is beyond anybody's imagination. We could not make this up. This is a true revelation from God to man of who Jesus truly is. In one moment, he is their teacher, right? He's their sleepy teacher, their unconcerned teacher, they think. And in the next moment, he is speaking and all creation takes notice and obeys. That's why they were greatly afraid after he calmed the sea. They were more afraid of the one in the boat than the storm outside the boat because they saw him for who he truly is. They get a glimpse of glory. It's like the Mount of Transfiguration, if you will. They're on this Sea of Galilee. And since we need to understand that, that what we see here in this narrative, especially in verses 35 to 41, you need to understand this from the reading of this gospel in particular. Mark is a powerful gospel. It sort of cuts straight to the heart. It goes from, you know, start to fast forward, like immediately. It's going to take you all the way to the cross. Things slow down at that point. But, but here, what we see in this 
portion. He has just finished up the parable portion. And now we're entering into the miraculous portion of the Gospel of Mark. And this miracle here, this miracle is the first of many miracles that you'll see in chapter 4 and throughout chapter 5. Every one of those, by the way, are ordained for the same purpose, to help reveal to us the true nature of Jesus. Through these miracles, we learn that Jesus is sovereign over all the forces of nature, all the forces of the demonic, and it He reigns over even death and its nature itself. He reigns over all these forces, nature, the demonic, and even death. And in these miracles, we see that he reigns over all of them with full and absolute authority. Every one of them respond to his authority when he acts upon it. In each encounter, there's something else you should notice. It's the first time that this has occurred to these new disciples Each one of these events that take place in Mark chapter 4 and 5 display Jesus coming into a circumstance where there is the the threat of death is on every hand. In each encounter, you'll see that there is a threat of death that hangs over every single account. These men have been called to follow Jesus and count the cost, but they hadn't truly understood what that really was going to mean. And yet they see something in this, that though death is looming, though death is there... There is one who reigns over death itself, and it's Jesus. In verses 35 to 41 of chapter 4, we see that really clearly. The disciples encounter death in a violent storm, and Christ protects them through it. In chapter 5, Jesus encounters a demon-possessed and deadly man who wants to destroy people, destroy himself, yet Christ sets him free and gives him life. And then he encounters in that same chapter a woman with an issue of blood. She's dying. She's hemorrhaging for many years. The doctors have only made it worse. He encounters this woman who is dying and he heals her and makes her whole. And then finally there in chapter 5, Jesus encounters Jairus, whose daughter was dying. And then she died before Jesus arrived. But when Jesus shows up, he brings life to the dead. And the little girl rises. In every miracle, we see Jesus conquering death. And saints, that is recorded for a purpose. It's recorded so that like the disciples in the boat, we who are weak in faith and fearful in life, it's written so that we can find fresh assurance about the one who is with us. This Jesus that we see in this narrative. This Jesus is the one who conquers all our enemies. He is our eternal hope and he is our peace in the storms of life themselves. The primary purpose is this revelation for this narrative. The primary purpose or the meaning of this passage is, again, not that Jesus can calm all the storms in your life. Saints, he doesn't always do that. He doesn't always do that. He actually often intensifies the storm for our good to sanctify us through it. And this account makes it very clear that he does that. He's doing that here with the disciples. Remember, Jesus is the one who led them into the storm. And he is the one who calmed the storm. And even though he calmed the storm, they they went from being afraid, being fearful of this, this threat of death, 
to being absolutely terrified, filled with great fear in his presence. Think about it. They went from being terrified to being petrified because of the one who was with them who calmed the storm. They were petrified because they now came to realize that they were in the very presence of the transcendent, holy, and almighty Son of God. Do you realize that's who you're in the presence of every day? Is there a great reverence in your heart when you think about who is with you in the storm? That he provided the storm for your good and his glory? Does it fill you with awe? It should. Oftentimes, we're more like the disciples saying, God, don't you care about us in the midst of this? He cares enough to reveal himself to us. That's the best gift of all. Making the storm cease but not giving us a revelation of himself would be a cruelty. But he shows us that in the storm, I'm going to show you my glory. The storm brought them face to face with a different kind of storm. It brought them face to face with the storm and power of incarnate deity. Jesus rebukes the storm. He just rebuked it for their good. And he now stands there looking over this placid sea. And these men now are filled with a greater fear than before. They're humbled to the core. They're now in fear, true fear. And this is all appropriate. It's an appropriate response to what Jesus displayed in this miracle and this revelation of himself. They saw something for the very first time here in this act of this miraculous event. They saw for the first time that something more powerful than all the forces of nature stood among them. And that was Jesus. They were finally seeing the incarnate power of their creator, God. And it seems that they seem to, in their response, echo what the writer of Hebrews penned in Hebrews 10.31. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Church, getting a glimpse of Jesus' true glory is far more terrifying than any deadly storm that comes upon you in life. These disciples now realize this. They now realize they were in the presence of the one who had the power to cause the storm to cease, control nature itself, but yet he's mercifully doing this on their behalf. They stood in the presence of the one who could save men like them who have little faith. That's good to know, isn't it? You don't have to be a spiritual giant to be rescued by Jesus. You just have to know him for who he truly is and trust in him. The disciples would have known that this act, this miracle, this magnificent moment in time was revelatory. They would have known that this miracle revealed who Jesus truly is. Even their question implies this. Who then is this? This is Jesus, who is truly God, the Son. They would have known that because only God can control nature and creation itself. They knew that this Jesus was truly God, the Son, the creator of all things. They knew that because that's what the Old Testament had taught them. They knew that only God could calm the forces of nature. That's what it says in Psalm 107. It's all about Yahweh. And it says, Yahweh, God, made the storm be still and the waters of the sea were hushed. Saints, this is who Jesus is. He is God in the flesh. 
God with us. This is the primary point of this narrative. So that we see Jesus for who he is. And when you go back to Mark 4.39, you'll notice something that doesn't happen. What they probably expected to happen was, Jesus, get up and pray. You know, intercede on our behalf. Plead with the Father for us. That's not what he does to calm the storm. That's not what he does at all. Instead, he spoke. And all creation obeyed their sovereign creator's voice. If all creation obeys his voice, why do we have such a hard time doing it ourselves? Do we not see him for who he truly is? The one who has bought us with a price, his own blood, the one who has redeemed us from the curse, the one who has promised us eternal life. Do we not obey him out of the joy within our hearts over what he has done to reveal himself to us? We should. This is the ultimate means of sanctification is to look and behold the glory of Jesus and respond out of thankfulness. Mark wants to help us do that when we read this gospel. That's why Mark records the miracle here in Mark 4. As I said, the miracle, this particular miracle, is primarily revealed to display the supremacy and glory of Jesus to men and women who are weak in faith and fearful. And that glorious revelation moves into secondary implications for us that we need to look at and think about. Look at verse 37 to 39. Just glance at them. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but look at them. In these passages, these verses, 37 to 39, what we see is that Jesus is not only our sovereign creator. He's more than that, saints. Not less, but he's more. And there's an implication in the more toward us. This is the revelation. He is sovereign. He is the creator. But he's also a merciful savior. We see that in how he responds to these foolish disciples who are of little faith and even a little arrogant. This Jesus that's revealed here shows us he is not only the sovereign, he is the merciful one. He is full of pity and love and power toward his people. We see that in his response to their harsh question in verse 38. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Again, that, that question reveals panic and desperation and an accusation on their part. But sadly, saints, again, I have to remind you that you need to put yourself in the boat with the disciples. This is where you can look at where you fit in this story. It's not about the disciples. It's about Jesus. But you're in the boat with them. I'm in the boat with them. At times, I sound just like them. At times, we can find ourselves asking the very same question. Don't you even care? I'm hurt. I'm supposed to be your child. Why are these things happening in my life? Why is this devastation coming, this heartache, this heart-wrenching pain? Why is it here? Why does it seem like there's a storm that won't let up? It's overwhelming us. And Jesus, you seem to be unconcerned. You seem to be distant. That's what the disciples thought, though he was in the back of the boat, because he was not anxious, not doing what they thought he should do. They thought he was distant, that he didn't care. But this narrative, as we read through the end of this, it it reminds us that he does indeed care, doesn't he? These men had no idea how much he truly did care for them. Just remember that his care for them is the very reason they're in the boat with him. He called them. 
He put them in the storm to sanctify them, to conform them to his own image, to show them his glory. That's how much he cares. Sometimes he puts us in the storm just for this, to cause us to see how great our God is as he rides out the storm with us and keeps us in his mercy and brings us out on the other side to serve others more effectively. That's what was going to happen here. He cared for them by getting in the boat with them, by taking them on this journey. And he cared for us by coming into this world to go with us through this journey, to rescue dead and drowning sinners. That's how much he cares for them, how much he cares for us. Church, the miracle that, that followed their question just reinforced how much Jesus truly cared. He rebukes, think about it, his very actions tell us how much he cared for these these weak disciples, these frustrating disciples, these people like us, right? Instead of first rebuking them when they woke him up, what's he do? He rebukes the storm. He speaks to the storm. And then he gently rebukes them. He doesn't neglect his loving rebukes. But in verse 40, he gently corrects them because he expected them to trust his faithful testimony of mercy. That's what's been displayed throughout Mark from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 4. We see a glimpse of his great mercy toward the person who is sick, the person who is, is weak physically. They've seen mercy after mercy. He's at Peter's house so long, he's so exhausted, healing people all day long, that he finally has to go away and pray by himself. He has shown mercy after mercy. And he says, don't you see my faithful testimony by now? I'm not just the creator. I'm a merciful savior. I care about my people. He expected them to trust this. And saints, he expects us to trust him as well. He expects us to rest in his faithful testimony of mercy when we go through storms, when we go through trials. And here's why. If you look at those narratives up to this point, you can see that Jesus never failed to carry the weak. He never failed to heal the broken. He, he never failed to bring peace to sinners. And so that tells us that we should trust him when we go through the storms of life. When he leads us into the storm, we can trust that he is a merciful, sovereign one. He'll be with us. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. He'll go with us into the storm for a purpose. When you're in the midst of these storms, and, and I hope that none of you are today, but if you are in the midst of a storm, a trial today, there's good news for you in this. There's really good news. There's gospel news here in this. Because in this, we can see that all these storms in our life, just like in the life of the disciples, these storms ordained by God himself, God the Son, for our good and for his glory. He wants us to see him. He wants us to look to him. He wants us to trust in him. And we can have confidence when we do that he cares for us in the midst of our trials and our suffering. Saints, you can trust in who this is. You can trust in Jesus, the Son of God. And here's why you can trust in him to be with you in the storm. He uses these storms, storms to strengthen your faith by making you look back to him, to turn to him, to rescue you in them. He's the one who rescued you already from the greatest storm of all. 
He wants us to have our faith strengthened because he truly does care for us. He is not a distant deity, the sovereign one out in the universe somewhere. No, he comes near to us and he cares for us. He cares so much that he'll use even these trials to give us a greater glimpse of his glory and his mercy. And saints, that's the purpose for the trials in our lives as Christians. It's an act of his sanctifying grace toward us. He also does this because he is merciful and understands what we go through in these trials themselves. He understands that because Jesus himself entered into the greatest storm of all on your behalf. He mercifully entered the storm of God's wrath that we deserved. And in that storm, he was crushed to death for our sins. But but before he died... He took one last breath, did he not? And in that last breath, he pronounced that it is finished. And in effect, here's what he said. Peace be still to the threats of sin and Satan and eternal death. Saints, he did that to reveal to us how much he cares, to show us his glory and his mercy, not just in the midst of the storm, but for eternity. We'll sing his praises around the throne For he is the one who is slain in our place. So he sends these storms to give us hope in him who understands what we're going through and knows that we need to have ourselves sanctified, set apart more unto him to understand who he is and why he came. So if you are a weary saint this morning, take courage in this narrative. Take courage in this The sovereign one who is also merciful, he tells us through the acts toward his own disciples here in the narrative that he will never leave us nor forsake us in the storms of life because he's the one who sent the storms in the first place, not to drown us in the storm, but to help us answer the disciples question. Who then is this in the storm with us? Church, this is Jesus, the son of God our sovereign creator, and our merciful savior. He does care for us. Never forget that. Rejoice in how he shows you his greatest care for you, which is his own revelation of himself. Let's give thanks for that this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Oh, we thank you so much for sending forth your son to save us from ourselves, from your wrath, and to set us apart To go through life and face these storms, these trials that come so that we would see a greater glimpse of your glory, Christ. That we would see you for who you truly are. Who then is this Jesus? He is my savior. He is my merciful, sovereign creator who acted in time to redeem me from the greatest storm of all. The storm that was brought upon me due to my own sin. He rescued me. And Lord Jesus, if you did the greater thing for us, we can have absolute trust and confidence that you will do the lesser thing and keep us in the midst of the storm. We want to praise you. We want to give you thanks on the good days and on the bad because you are worthy for you are truly the son of God. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.